Hello, I'm Liv Bolton, and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of your life. The Outdoors Fix is produced in association with our friends at Ellis Brigham Mountain Sports. Welcome back to episode three of the fourth series. Do you fancy switching up your life after lockdown and getting a job where you're outdoors every day? What about becoming a countryside ranger? My guest today is Ben Dolphin. Ben used to work for a bank, but a few years ago, he got chatting to a walker on top of a hill and that chance meeting changed the course of his life. Ben's now a ranger in Scotland, an outdoors writer and blogger, and he's just finished his three-year term as president of Rambler Scotland. Ben lives in the Lomond Hills in Fife, and I planned to meet him for a walk there, but coronavirus put an end to that, so we chatted to each other over Skype instead. I wanted to find out how and why he moved from a corporate career to becoming a countryside ranger, and what the job involves. I also wanted to hear what he learned from hiking all over Scotland over three years with 54 Rambler Scotland walking groups. I hope you enjoy the podcast and Ben's story. Listen out for his tips for becoming a ranger at the end of the podcast, as well as the relaxing minute of sounds of nature, recorded by some of you. Here's Ben. Welcome to the Outdoors, Vix. Thank you for having me. This is a, an unusual setup because of coronavirus. I was supposed to be with you in the Lomond Hills in Fife in Scotland. Um, but actually, it's quite good that I'm not there with you, isn't it? Because the weather isn't great there today. No, it's not. I mean, um, so I can see you on the webcam and you're sort of got blazing sunshine going through your window. But here, looking out the window, it's just drizzle and fog and mist. So maybe it's just as well. <laughs> oh well no, it is a bit of a shame that I'm not up there with you but these times we have to do things slightly differently um, and it's a lovely at least that we can still do it. I want to start with uh, you're living in the Lomond Hills how often are you out on these hills when it's not the coronavirus? Pretty much every day I suppose especially now the evenings are getting lighter it means we have to get out after work uh, but most days Actually, it is as simple as walking out the front door and over a stile and you're, you're on the hill. So it's very, very accessible. And even now, even with everything that's going on, I'm, I'm not driving, I'm not using my car, I'm not driving to get anywhere. So even now, you know, my one walk a day is still on the hill. Perfect. And when, when you're up there, what do you think is special about the Lomond Hills? If you, if you're in, most people who, who are in Edinburgh or have been at Arthur's Seat will, will have seen them, if they, even if they don't know what they are. There's these twin hills joined by a high plateau, one at each and a hill at each end of this plateau, two little bumps. They're the former insides of, you know, ancient volcanoes, these, 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 two, these two lumps, West Lomond and East Lomond. Um, and because they're fairly isolated in Fife, and they're the highest ground in Fife, and East Lomond in particular, which is the one that I pretty much stay on, it's all isolated by itself. So you get this incredible view. Um, it's a, it's, and it's an old hill fort, so you can imagine it's got that prominence and that all-round view that people valued back in the day were for uh, seeing, you know, the hordes coming to maraud their, uh, their settlements. So it's got it's an amazing viewpoint. You can see all the way into the Cairngorms. You can see down to almost to the English border, all the way into Lanarkshire. It's an amazing place. Fantastic. And how do you feel when you're out there? Often, I, it's hard to describe, isn't it? And I, I do wonder, I've, I've pondered this question a lot. Why do any of us walk? You know, what is it that any of us get from it? 
and often it's not even a, it's not even a conscious thought i suppose it's it's my downtime <clears throat> i guess getting out into the hills locally i almost don't it's just it's just become habit you just go outside because that's what you do and you value that time and it's downtime you're not even thinking consciously and then you find yourself at the top of the hill without really realizing or remembering how you got there um it's just a very relaxing place and it's nice to see other folk out about enjoying it as well it's it's a quite a popular spot but it's just that especially being up high that feeling of being ah, free I guess that most of us all value who get out into the hills oh wonderful you are a countryside ranger an outdoors blogger and you've just finished your term as president of Ramblers Scotland uh, which is yes. the body that represents uh, walkers in Scotland I want to come on to this all all a bit later but before that what was your relationship with the outdoors growing up I was well I had we had when I was at school, all my friends, we all split into two groups. So the groups who went down to the southwest of England for the holidays and sat on beaches and built sun castles and, and messed around in rock pools. And then there was the other half that went to, to Wales and were dragged up hills in the mist. And I was in the first one. So I was, we were always outdoorsy in that we were being taken out of the door, out of the front door. We were always outdoors, but not necessarily walking. So I'm not always sure where that love of walking and the outdoors came from but I do remember some of my more vivid memories of those holidays of being driven over places like Dartmoor, Bodmin, um, Exmoor, places like that and just finding that those were more appealing to me for some reason I didn't know why you know I was craving something at the time but didn't know what it was but the, the, the moorland, the heath, the, the miserable weather in August that's what I really liked and you know these tin mine ruins and everything so that was the introduction to the outdoors I guess but how it went from that to walking, I did go to the Cubs and the Scouts. So that was always there as well. But I only really went because my pals were doing it, not because I had any great love to go and do it. So that fostered, I suppose, gave me exposure to the kinds of things that I do later in life, like doing long distance walks along Hadrian's Wall and things like that. So I kind of fell into it in that respect, I think. And, and you grew up in England then? Yes. Yeah. Down in um, the West Midlands in Solihull. So quite, yeah, quite a contrast to where you're living now in Scotland. You haven't always been outdoorsy in your career. You were a banker. Well, I wouldn't even go that far. I worked for a bank. I mean, that can mean anything these days. You know, banks are so big. It was in, um, to start off with, it was a vehicle finance because I moved to Edinburgh just because I wanted to be in Edinburgh and needed a job. So I went temping and uh, just got a job for Bank of Scotland vehicle finance. You know, I didn't choose to be in a bank. Um, so I was there for a few years and that, and that was great because it was, I didn't care what I did as long as I had a roof over my head. I had a means of getting to the hills and I was breaking even at the very least, which I was. And then that job went down south, literally uh, to Watford. And then I ended up working elsewhere in HBOS doing, um, uh, what's it called, project management. Um, but I, I didn't really do anything. I didn't really do anything to do with banking. It didn't, I don't think. And even when my other half met my boss when we were out and about once on a social thing, uh, he asked her, what does Ben actually do? And she couldn't tell him because she didn't know either. So I was just one of those people that was just hanging around and no one really knew what, I don't even know what I did. I don't know what, I was there for years, you know, so I don't know what I did. I definitely didn't do banking anyway, but I was, I did work in a bank, but I just don't know what I was doing and nobody, nobody else knew either. So what was the moment that you thought rangering might be something that you're interested in? Because that is a very big leap away from what you were doing before. Yeah. Um, I remember being on holiday up in 
Asinth, which is up in up on the northwest coast in Sutherland, beautiful part of the world. And I remember seeing a little shack, it was which doubled as the Ranger Center. I mean, it was it was just a little wooden shack on the beach. And I remember thinking, oh, what an amazing place that must be to live. That was the first. That's the first recollection I think of thinking, oh, that'd be a nice thing to do. But I knew nothing about nature really, or the out you know the outdoors in that respect. It was actually it was an accident that um, I was out on a hill. Around this time of year, actually, years ago, about eight, nine, ten years ago, and uh, yeah, I had, uh, yeah, I got into a bit of trouble. I was up on the hill um, and hadn't brought my ice axe or my crampons with me. They were in the car. I brought them up that day. Um, it was a beautiful sunny day. I was down in the glen. And you could see it to the top of the hills. If anyone knows them, it's the Memoirs near Kinlochleven, and. I remember thinking, oh, I'll be fine. I couldn't see any snow. So I went up the, up the top of the hill. And, and then I got to the top of this hill, and there's two, it throws two long ridges down. And I couldn't get down either of the ridges because the snow was so hard packed and frozen, I didn't have a crampon. So I went down the front of the hill instead and ended up having to sort of, not as bad as it sounds, but climb down this, this rocky chute, uh, pushing out with my hands on either side. It was fine. It, it, you know, it, it, wasn't, it was steep, but not unusually so. And it, but it was free of snow was a crucial thing. And then I committed my leg to one stone below me and then it, it gave way and I had to brace my fall. Um, and I remember pushing outwards and my hands got blooded. And I remember thinking at the time, no one's going to find me. Um, and just having this enormous sense of disappointment that I hadn't brought my mobile phone with me. I hadn't um, told anyone where I was going. Things I always did. And I always did all these things, but I hadn't done any of these things. And in the end, I had to let myself go, and I did tumble a bit, feet first, and ended up on this, uh, I, I still don't know how, ended up on this little platform, and I was fine. I was standing up, well shaken up, of course. Um, but I did then have a six, seven-mile walk back to the car, and then stopping in burns on the way back and up to my thighs so that I could cool it down to try and cool, you know, try and reduce the inflammation, because it was, it was a bit odd, and my, my, my foot was sticking out to the right a bit. And when I got back to the car, uh, drove all the way home to Edinburgh, which is two and a half hours, and then got out of the car and just fell on the, the road because my leg couldn't take my weight. And I was off the, it was, a, it was ligaments, thankfully, that's all it was, but I was off the hills for four months, I think, and had to slow down. I had no choice but to slow down. So even just walking around the local mall uh, at South Gyle, I had to just go slow. And that was the revelation being that I realized that slowing down actually made life more pleasurable because now I wasn't getting het up at trying to, you know, walk past people or people being in my way. I was the obstacle and it was wonderful. Um, and when I finally recovered and leg got better and I, I, when I finally got back out onto the hills, I was slowing down by choice rather than um, because I had to. And that meant that I was spending more time on summits, which I never used to do. I never used to sit on summits for any length of time. I was always on, have to go to bag the next Munro. You know, it was all about bagging stuff and moving. Um, and the, the thing that happened is I, I, because I was spending more time on summits and being slow, I got chatting to a guy. I, was, I got chatting to everyone, but one guy in particular who ended up being a, a volunteer ranger for the Pentland Hills Ranger Service just outside Edinburgh. And he said, you know, well, I had a long chat, about half an hour. And he said, well, why don't you try um, and I thought, oh, I could do that. And I, I suppose, I don't know whether having an accident makes you introspective in some way, but I was thinking at the time, maybe I was taking from the hills and not giving anything back. So I had this sense of wanting to give something back um, to walking paths and you know, contributing to erosion and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think that was the catalyst, really. 
um, this accident leading to me talking to people and meeting people who are in that field. He talked about being a volunteer ranger then. How did you come to do that? Was it alongside your job then, working for that bank? Yeah, so it was, um, they didn't ask for a big commitment. They wanted, I think it was four or five days a year. And what you do, you just meet them at the ranger centre. Um, they'd drop you off at some other place in the regional park, which the Pentlands is quite a big place, um, quite a sizable range of hills. And, and then you'd go on a patrol and maybe have some tasks, but you'd be the public face, I suppose, because the rangers themselves didn't get out much to actually meet the public. So you'd be the public face of the, the park. Um, and I, I, it's a popular thing to do, and, and it was then. They had about 40 people on the books or something. So there was a waiting list. And I thought, oh, well, I'll never hear back. They said, well, we'll get back to you if anyone ever leaves. And I think it's about three, only three months later, um, they got me in, said someone's left, so you know, come in by all means. So I did that. I only had to do four or five a year, but I think I ended up doing sort of 12. You could sign up for as many shifts as you wanted within reason, but it was an extra thing, I suppose, at the weekend at the time. How did you make this move from being a volunteer ranger to then wanting to make it your professional career? Well, one of the fellow volunteer rangers, she was also working in a bank doing something, um, like I still was at the time. And she said... Oh, she, she, she told me about this course called Countryside Management and HNC, which I'd never heard of, um, which is, it's not the only way into range into ranger work, but it tends to be the, it has always been the accepted way. You go into, you know, Countryside Management, HNC, H&D, that's how you get into it. Um, learning about land management and uh, nature and geology and, you know, and conservation, all those things. It's all that, everything's rolled into one. It's an amazing course. And she was doing one day a week part-time and her employer had let her work her other five days in four and she said why don't you ask H boss as it was at the time I think why don't you ask them and I thought they never would I thought why well you know what's in it for them to actually say yes um but to their credit they did I don't know maybe they wanted rid of me <laughs> I don't right. know but um so that was that was that so yeah I started doing that one day a week um the HNC it was going to take two years to the HNC and then it would take two years to the HND um, so in my head, I formulated a plan thinking, I've got a five-year plan. It's going to take four years to get through college. And then maybe in that fifth year, I'll get a ranger job. Um, and actually, that's exactly how it ended up happening in the end. Oh, boom. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but I mean, when you were doing the studying and working, I mean, that sounds like it, it was a lot on your plate during those years. What were people saying about this? Were people very supportive about the decision? Um, it's quite a big change to go from a career in, in working with a bank to being a countryside ranger. Um, I think a lot of people were just very envious. I, I mean, I think back to school. If any of us think back to school, I mean, how much did you actually enjoy? And it was, I'd never experienced that, that, that thing of doing something and researching subjects and writing assignments and uh, doing field studies and things and just loving every single minute and having field trips to interesting places and going on you know study tours to the island of rum or exchange tours to norway and things it was just i, I mean it's such a happy time in my life that I, I it was an absolute joy there wasn't a, a moment of that course that i didn't enjoy it was i was really sad to leave um but uh, yeah it was Lots of encouragement from people. I, I don't know if anyone was surprised necessarily. My, my dad always said to me, actually, even before I moved up 
Edinburgh, he, he was always a great advocate for saying, you, well, you don't know what you do want to do, but at least put yourself in the kind of environment where you want to spend your time. So he was very enthusiastic about moving up to Scotland and just, you know, so anything that sort of got me outdoors because I liked walking so much at the time, he thought was good because eventually you'll find out what you want to do. It sounds wonderful, that course. I hadn't really heard about exactly how you get trained as a as a ranger. How did you feel then when you got your first paid ranger job? And, and where was it? It was actually at West Lothian Council. It was, only, it was only a three-month contract at the time. I was thrilled to bits, and then that got extended to six months. Uh, seasonal ranger, so you're not, you're not there all year round, but I was there for five seasons, and the seasons each got longer. So by the time I left, I was on 10-month contracts pretty much. So what is a typical day then when you're being a ranger? Well, it depends which service you work for, I guess. The general remit is the same for ranger services and that they want to encourage people to use the outdoors to be healthy to understand the environment um, and to help people to maybe contribute or volunteer in a productive way into safeguarding these amazing places we have but it can it varies enormously the last two summers i've worked for the national trust for scotland up at my lodge estate in the cairngorms as a seasonal ranger and that's very different to what i'm doing in west lothian um in in nts a typical day would be turning up, uh, cleaning the toilets, the sort of going down and making sure that the portaloos at the car park aren't blocked, doing a litter pick, uh, emptying car, you know, ticket machines, but then actually doing public engagement and speaking to people uh, who turn up at the car park who are asking for how to, you know, what Munro should I go and do? What, what, what wildlife is there here to see? Doing guided walks, public events, that kind of stuff. Wonderful stuff. And in West Lothian, it's different. We don't have so much public engagement in that sense, but we have more work in terms of actual access work. So facilitating the public's access to the outdoors and making sure that there's a path network that they can use um, and a lot more school visits, uh, which is a really big part of what we do. So a typical day, there's not really any such thing, I suppose. It really, it's, it's, that's part of the attraction. It's a wonderfully varied work, whatever range of service you work for, I think. And what's your favourite part of the job? What's your favourite task? Something I really liked when I was at Mar Lodge was doing guided walks, uh, sort of four, three, four-hour guided walks, you know, through regenerating native pine forest in the Cairngorms and actually telling people and communicate, communicating to people what's special about it and why they should care. And sometimes it might only be two or three people, but having that, that personal interaction and being able to spend a few hours with people rather than just fleeting 20 seconds, you know, somebody saying, where, where, where's the toilet? Oh, it's over there. Actually having a decent amount of time to try and not convert people, but, you know, sell, sell the place that you work for and try and convince people why it's worth their time, their interest and why, and maybe even worth them donating something. Actually, yeah, and conveying a joy of the outdoors to people and helping people to understand what's amazing about it. That's the part I really, really like, I think. But anything that sort of engages with an eager, enthusiastic public enjoying nature and the outdoors really uh that's what i really get out of it i think the cairngorms is such a stunning place and i only went up for the first time recently and i walked through lots of beautiful scots pines woods forests what is it do you think about the cairngorms when you're up there i mean what do you love about it there's not really anywhere else like it in this country not in the uk not in scotland um Funny enough, you can get tastes of it down south in places like the New Forest and even in parts of Surrey, where there's lots of Scots pine and lots of heath. 
it's you know it's, it's eerily similar. But the Cairngorms is um it's a vast place. I mean it's it looks proper. I haven't been to up in you know Finland and Sweden and all these these places like Sarik National Park and these these incredible places. But I've seen photos of them and it looks this is what the Cairngorms, at least parts of the Cairngorms look like. It looks like a much bigger wilderness with massive mountains beautiful forests and big forests not just small plantations of scots pine you know that might be two three hectares big i mean this is a massive massive place with a lot of the uk's most threatened and rare and endangered species and it's just a mix of woodland big rivers heath moor that is unlike anywhere else in the country i think it's a very uplifting place to spend your time have you had any moments when you're up there in the Marlodge estate where you know has it, you've stood there and thought blimey this is this is just quite an incredible job most days <laughs> I, think. Uh, I was really i mean i was fortunate i stayed on site in um, in the lodge um, working on site you stay on site um so every morning having i did have a 20 second commute actually <laughs> To start off with, that, that got a bit longer. I had to move, and I, got, I had a three-minute commute after that. Oh, blimey! Which was a massive increase, <laughs> very traumatic. But yeah, just walking out every morning and seeing trees, which is not something you see everywhere in the UK generally. Even in Scotland, you don't. Just seeing forests and and the smell, as well, the smell of a, especially in summer, the smell of pine. It's just wonderful. But there was there's a hill behind my lodge called Craig Valley, which are not massive. I think it was six hundred and something meters high so not huge you could be at the top of it in about 80 minutes and it has one of the best views i've found anywhere in the cairngorms actually looking at one of the glens glen coich looking into the cairngorms and it's a very little frequented hill and it's not on monroe so it's not on people's lists necessarily but it has this amazing view you know of this glen and you can see all the woodland coming back yeah going up there i think that's those are my moments i think i have when i'm up there thinking this is this is an incredible place to be your knowledge of nature, then, is that something that you learnt on the course to become a ranger? Yeah, yeah, and it's still not great. My, my brain doesn't retain it. I was just thinking, I mean, just thinking about all the amazing moths, all, all, all the ecological surveying that I was helping with at Mar Lodge, and then, because you've got your head buried in heather and bog all day looking for little pine saplings, and then all these other little things, like moths, beautiful moths, big on moths, uh, pop out and you think oh what's that and you go and identify it and I was getting you know quite good at remembering all these moths it's all gone and it was only <laughs> six seven months ago I was there um, so I, I have a bit I have difficulty in remembering it all but I remember being at college in the first couple of years and being on the, the study trip to rum and everyone's crawling over this you know this coastal heathland picking out flowers and going oh that's a this and that's a that and, and I was like how do these people know this you know they all start at the same time as I did I think Anyone who's coming into that, that line of work or just wanting to appreciate the outdoors or learn more about the outdoors and nature, it can seem overwhelming because other people's knowledge seems astronomical. But you just have to learn little bits every time. And that's what I had to do. You know, if I was out on a hill walk just for pleasure, I at least I wouldn't try and make it too complicated. If I saw two things that I didn't know, I'd take pictures of them and then identify them when I got back. But I, yeah, I think as long as you're out all the time and you keep adding just bit by bit, you know, don't, don't view it as the whole thinking, I have to learn nature. I have to learn it all. You never will. You know, just learn little bits. Learn the things that interest you. You know, you can specialize in things. You might find that you're a, 
a moth person or a, a bug person or a, a fern person or something. And everyone's, everyone finds something a bit more interesting than the rest of it. You know, focus on that, you know, find your niche maybe. But yeah, it can be a bit overwhelming. When you're on your guided walks then with the people who want to learn a bit more about the area and the nature, what are the things that nature wise, what are the things that you try to point out and try to teach people about the most? People see a view, you see a big mountain view and think that's amazing. And it doesn't really occur to people that there's so much below down at your feet that you're missing. So when you start pointing out things to people, you know, that because they're, they're looking outwards all the time. They're always looking out. When you take people on a guided walk, you know, the camera's always up outwards at arm's length. So when you start showing people that, no, no, look down, look at this, look at this, and, and, and telling them about, you know, showing them juniper berries or an oil beetle, if you're lucky enough to encounter one of those, or an adder, you know, things like that, that would go unnoticed otherwise. That's when people start to think there's more to a walk than they ever thought was possible. So if there is one, yes, I think on reflection, yes, if there's one particular thing I like to get across to people, it's it's so small thing. It's the little things below the feet, hopefully they're not stepping on, (laughs) that that they can appreciate. Fantastic. What's the hours and the sort of rotors like? Are you working and staying on an estate? Are you working seven days on and then seven days off? How How does it usually work? I'm sure it's different in many places, but what's the usual pattern? When I was at Mar Lodge, it could be because you have weekends are the busiest times, um, and we would have, especially in the summer, fire patrols were important, and people are out, and you want to protect the woodland. You want to make sure people aren't going to be setting fires; they're going to be setting fire to the peat. So that governs when you work. So it always has to be somebody on at weekends because they're the busiest times. So sometimes you might end up doing nine, ten days in a row, and then having quite a number of days off. Uh, my current shift is uh, seven days on, two days off three days on, two days off. And that goes through a 14-day cycle to make sure we've got all weekends covered. My impression is that most rangers have to be flexible. They have to appreciate there might be some evening work, um, especially as you get into summer and people like to do uh, bat walks and things and going into the autumn, doing creatures of the night walks or, or things like that. You might you might get a community group that wants you to come and do a bat walk. So you might be out late in the evening. But if you're working in a ranger service where you're at a visitor hotspot or a country park, then you're likely going to have to work weekends, I suppose, because those are the busiest times. And that's when you really need the presence there to not only just interact with people um, if they if they want that, but also to just clear up any problems that might arise, um, which they do, of course. Oh, it sounds like a fabulous career. It really does. And and outside of rangering, then, you have a lot of other interests. Um, you are an outdoors journalist, an outdoors writer. You have written for Walk Highlands frequently and other publications. You also have a YouTube channel where you do vlogs on your walks and, and so much more. Is it all about trying to inspire others to get outdoors? Yes. The blog started because it actually went on a... I went on a, a protest against a, it was a massive wind farm in completely the wrong place in the Cairngorms. And I just wanted to write about the experience and I had nowhere to write about it. So I just stuck it on a, a, a Tumblr platform, just as a one-off and thought, you know, I don't know if anyone will read it, but it's there. People want to read it. I just felt like I wanted to tell people, I wanted to share what I'd, what I'd found out. But it occurred to me afterwards that um, lots of wild places are disappearing or get developed because people don't know about them um and what you don't know about you can't care about it's essentially it's what uh, there was a, a really famous if you in rangerland there's a really famous um american guy who worked 
for the national parks back in the, the 50s called Freeman Tilden. And what he said was, he wrote a book, and what he said about, uh, generally about what's called interpretation, which are, people are familiar with that term, which is interpretation could be anything. It's how you interpret a thing to make the public understand. So it could be through a guided walk, it could be through a, a, an interpretive panel, it could be through a leaflet, that, that kind of thing. And what he, he said, well, I think he said, through interpretation, understanding, through understanding, appreciation, and through appreciation, protection. So it's essentially that thing of people won't care about something, they won't protect something if they don't know it's there. So I suppose that's a big part of it, is trying to make people, not just places, but wildlife as well. And if people don't realize the amazing things we have around them, the amazing places, then they can disappear quite quickly. And so that's that's a big part of it, I suppose. But also, yes, it's just this need to, like, I think most of us do who are out enjoying the outdoors is to to want to share it, just want to share share that happiness, I suppose, which is, I suppose, is why the video blogs works for me. I'm off in the hills by myself, and often you've got no one to turn to to say, oh, look at that, isn't that amazing? Um, so I think maybe that's why I do blether to this camera a lot of the time. I feel like I'm actually talking to somebody who's who's there when they're not, um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I've watched a lot of them and it is just wonderful to see how, see the joy in your face basically when you're up there. And it's a really lovely way of conveying the power of the outdoors, I think. It's, it, it, it continues to surprise me actually how well received they are. For some people, I mean, some people can't get out to the hills anymore. People who used to get to the hills a lot and now they can't for whatever reason, not just because of what's going on now, you know, either through, you know, injury or old age or whatever. And, and people love to, you know, see living vicariously, I suppose, through and still seeing places and seeing how places have changed since when they went there. I don't know. It, it's, I don't know. I mean, you can, you can ask people why they blog and you'll get 10 different answers, I suppose. And there's a, there's a part of it which is possibly quite narcissistic, maybe. I don't know. But also, it, it, I don't deny I get pleasure from the fact that people enjoy seeing these places and seeing these beautiful places. And a lot of people don't realize, I mean, everyone knows Scotland's an amazing place with wonderful wildlife, but I think people are continually surprised when you put photos up of these creatures that no one's ever heard of, you know? So just be able to show thing, people things that they didn't know were there. And, get, and, and hopefully through that, they get a, a greater understanding and appreciation of this place we live in. You've just finished three years as president of Ramblers Scotland, which is, um, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a very big, big title, really. Um, what did your role involve? To an extent, it involved what I wanted it to, what, what I made of it. It's an honorary position, so it's like being a figurehead, I guess. And there's certain things, like there's things, there's fixed dates in the year. So there's Scottish Council, which is the sort of the general meeting every year. Um, there's a few... Uh, road shows for the volunteers because Ramblers is completely driven by volunteers for the most part. So there's road shows for them to sort of improve their skills and meet people and mix with other groups. So you might be asked to go and you know speak and meet at those places. And there's a few other events throughout the year. But apart from that, you're kind of free to turn it into what you want. I think the hope is that whoever the, is in that position, they bring their experience and their contacts and just their general outlook and you and, and everyone brings a different thing so if, I, I think it, every different president can bring something else to the role what I decided to do was I wasn't really sure how I could make myself useful for the first few months but then I did I noticed that there was this there's still a lot of preconceptions out there about ramblers and stereotypes 
And I realized after going out on a couple of walks with my first couple of groups, which you know I'd never done group walking before, realized that those stereotypes and preconceptions didn't tell the whole story. So with the social media presence I had, I thought it made sense to try and get out with as many groups as possible um, and then blog about them afterwards. Lots of photos showing you know happy people doing something they love. And hopefully after three years, people would have a slightly changed view of who we are and where we go, and what we do. And um, it flew by three years just like that. <laughs> it was such fun. You went out with 54 walking groups during your presidency. Is that right? Yeah, there's um, yeah, there's 54 groups in Scotland. I mean, there's six and a half thousand members in Scotland. There's over 100,000 in GB, but six and a half thousand in Scotland and 54 groups. I didn't set out to do them all. I, I hoped to get through as many as possible, but when it started to become apparent that I could do it, but it did come down to the wire. The last one was Butte on the Isle of Butte, which is our only island group. And that was in the middle of all those storms in February. So it's gone down to the wire and with the, the shutdown coming in as well, you know, and it really has. It's, you realize how fortunate I was to actually have the time to do it in the end. Did you have any favourite walks that you went on with some of the groups? Yes. One in particular sticks to mind, which was with Loch Arbour and Lawn, who were based out sort of Fort William to Oban up that way, because it was one of the rare wintry, snowy days last winter. Uh, there was six, seven, eight inches of snow, minus nine at Glencoe, and then going up a hill there called Bukaletiv Beg, where normally I'd be by myself, and it's very hard work breaking trail through snow like that because I'm, always, I'm usually first on the hill and I'll get up very early to get out so it's hard work so simply from having eight or nine other people to break trail and take <laughs> it in turns and realize how much further you can go and how much more pleasurable walking can be in a group in those conditions um, I mean I love being out by myself and I always have been but that was really really nice and the other one that springs to mind is one with a group called Monklands who are based in is it Lanarkshire and we went off Canool Hill in Perth, if anyone's ever driven over, driven to, towards Dundee, when you, drive, when you drive north into Perth, you go over the, the, uh, the is it, I forget the name of the bridge, is it the Frighton Bridge? Yeah, and then there's a big hill in front of you with a, with a sort of a, a folly, a tower at the top, that's called Canool Hill. Very, very popular walk, an amazing viewpoint of the Tay. And we went up there and there was a girl who was 10 years old and there was people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. It was just lovely to have that range of ages all in one walk because it's not something I you know I people tend to stick to their little groups and their little ages and their age ranges you know people in their 20s might go out people in their 40s and you don't tend to get that overall dynamic of all ages all interacting with no barriers no obstacles and no preconceptions and that was really uplifting and for them it was just that's just what they do week in week out but for me stepping into that it was sort of oh, I had no idea that people did this and you know and got so much out of it so that's really nice. That was a, a lovely thing. I, I was following lots of your tweets when you were going out on the walks with the groups and the pictures were just beautiful. You did have some absolutely stunning days. Yes, um, and some awful ones <laughs> as well. <laughs> it's funny, I, I did. I, I put a, a, a big picture together of all the groups. I made a, a slide in a presentation at my at Scottish Council was my last formal engagement uh, just a few weeks ago and I put a presentation together and I did a slide which showed all those groups together and the overall color was sort of greeny, gray, brown, <laughs> not so much blue. It didn't, it didn't, I've had some really amazing days, but it didn't seem there were that many 
blazing sunshine days. I think it says more about Scotland really than it than, than probably what people know already. But yeah, I've, I did have some very memorable walks with her during that during those three years. If you could sum up briefly what the outdoors means to you, I think it's the way I think of it is if when we have friends and family come to stay, and we stay and they they're coming for a few days and they haven't been here before, and they ask what we're going to do, and you say, well, we can walk here, or we can walk there, or we can drive here, and then we can, and then we can walk from here to here. And if they don't want to do that, I just don't know what to do with them. I don't know. I don't know what else is there. It's that it is that thing of it. it it's everything. And I try to think back to a time when before blogging and before all this, and I just can't imagine it. I just don't know what I did before all this. Because if I get spare time, I'll be out. You know, for my my one walk today, I can't wait to get out. Even though the weather being what it's what it is, just looking out now, it's it's cleared up a little bit, but it's still very wet. I just need to get out because you just never know what you're going to encounter. And it makes me feel better always, you know, without fail. There was um, an American biologist called Edward Wilson who coined the phrase biophilia, which is just the, the fundamental belief that the presence of living things and being in close proximity to, proximity to them makes you feel better, makes humans feel better. And it's the kind of thing you see in hospitals, you know, they want nice big windows where people can see trees and it's it's we all know this you know people who are, go, get outdoors all the time they know we all know this is true but it's the outdoors makes you feel better and I don't know what I would do without it I don't think people who have inspired your outdoors adventures do you think uh the first one i don't think will come as any surprise i mean i know he's he's a national treasure david attenborough i remember recording on vhs all the wildlife on one wildlife on two programs and watching them again and again and again and still do and the man's amazing the second one and he would he'll be incredibly surprised to hear it is uh, my friend matthew who i don't we grew up together, but I haven't seen. He, he stays over in Edinburgh, so, but Edinburgh and Fife may as well be two, may as well be the Earth and the Moon, because no one wants to cross that bridge. So we never actually see each other anymore. But he's, he's quite close. But he he was the one who really got me into hill walking. I think he was one of the ones I was saying about the half of the kids at school who went to Wales. He was one of the ones that was getting dragged to Wales and dragged up hills when I was off building sandcastles on beaches. He was going up hills in Wales and he was going up Brecon Beacons and Snowdon and then he got us all to go all our pals to go and uh, do walking trips to the Alps and that was really before that kick-started the whole hill walking thing for me so yeah I'm surprised I'm surprised I'm, I'm probably as surprised as he is to find I'm saying <laughs> saying mm -hmm. his name but yeah Matthew Robbins thank you very much and the third one would be the nameless man the uh the guy I met on top of a very modest hill in the Pentland Hills back in 2008, the guy who was volunteering with the Pentland Hills Voluntary Ranger Service. So I don't know his name, I don't know who he was, but through that chat, I know I said that that whole thing was like a cascade of events from the accident onwards, but 
he did, I suppose, get me into the, my first range of work, even though it was voluntary. So I think those would be my three. Ben, what advice do you have for anyone who is interested in rangering as a career or even just volunteering as a ranger? I think it is to volunteer. And yeah, I, I, you can, I mean, you can, you can, I don't know how easy it is to get onto, I imagine it's fairly straightforward to get onto courses like countryside management. But if you actually want to get the experience, it's volunteering in any capacity. And you should do it because you like it. You know, it shouldn't be a chore. You shouldn't think, well, I want to be a ranger, so oh, I suppose I should volunteer. You should be just really happy to go and volunteer. Um, I did. I'm trying to think what things I did. I volunteered for the, the Fife Red Squirrel Group, so I went and helped with uh, some uh, some school classes and things, just anything you could do that was local. So I think if you volunteer with any local organisations, conservation work, practical work, I mean, that can make the difference. If people get two CVs and one of them, you've both got a countryside management qualification, but one of you has got has, has actually been out volunteering all the time. I mean, it's almost a no-brainer which one you're going to pick. So I think in terms of rangering, getting practical experience, it's uh, it's not great. It's not well paid like anything in you know environmental sector. It's not well paid. But um, if you're doing it for the love of it, then you'll you'll just love going and volunteering anyway, I think. that's That's probably the biggest tip, I think. And do you have tips for people who want to get outdoors more? How how do you get yourself outdoors more? Well, don't wait for the... Don't assume that the weather's going to stay as it is, I think. I mean, I, I'm guilty of this all the time up on the hill where I stay. You know, you come down in the morning and it's sun's blazing, like, like it seems to be doing for you today. The sun's <laughs> blazing through the window and you, you're sat there indoors and all you can see is that little square of blue sky out of your window and thinking, oh, I'll go out later, go out later. No, well, in Scotland anyway, go out now <laughs> because as soon as you leave it two hours, it's, you know, that, that opportunity has gone. I think, um, yeah, sometimes, I mean, even I sometimes find it a bit of an effort thinking, oh, but I don't want to go out now. It's like, no, go out now while you've got nice weather. I think that's <laughs> in this country, you know, when you've got the nice weather, go. And I think the other thing for enjoying the outdoors is uh, be curious because it's often often the way if you're walking along a path and this happens all the time to all of us, you're walking along a path and you hear a rustle and you just carry on walking. But you know, don't stand still and wait just 30 seconds. Just keep really still. Something, whatever it is, will come out. It doesn't take long for nature to feel confident once we stop moving. Um, and this happens all the time with me. You hear something and then you stop. And you know, a little shrew pops out or a, a wren or something. And they get very bold. Um, I was on the phone to my sister the other day, standing outside um, on top of a stone dike in the middle of nowhere. And then after I was on, on the phone to her for half an hour. And after that time, the skylarks that were flying around, they all started settling, I mean, meters from me and singing and then rising up and singing right above me. It's incredible. If you just keep still and be curious about everything that's going on around you, then you'll get so much more out of um a walk, a walk in the outdoors, I'd say. Beautiful. I love the sound of skylarks. Absolutely stunning. 
<laughs> oh, there's plenty of them around just now. I... <laughs> ben, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much. It's it's. I'm so glad that we finally Thank got you, to Liz. do Thank it. Thank you very much. Not that we finally got to do it amidst uh, you know coronavirus and and all those challenges, but uh, it's fantastic to hear your story. And um, are you going to go out for your one daily outing shortly? It doesn't look very enticing outdoors, <laughs> but yes, I will. Absolutely, I will. Yes, and uh, yeah, to stay healthy. Yeah. Oh well. Thank you again. Thanks very much, Liv. Thanks for listening to Ben's episode. You can see photos of Ben's walking adventures on the Outdoors Fix website or on Instagram at the Outdoors Fix. And you'll also find Ben on Twitter at Countryside Ben. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to make sure you get all the episodes when they come out. And please rate and review the podcast to help other people find it. You might also like to check out the dozens of episodes we've published since the podcast started. The Outdoors Fix is proudly supported by Ellis Brigham Mountain Sports, stores nationwide and online, offering everything you need to equip you for the best outdoors experience. Now, it's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to some sounds from nature recorded by some of you. I wasn't able to record any clips for this series while in lockdown in noisy London, so more than 35 of you came to my rescue. In this episode, we're hearing birdsong recorded by Fritzery Tatam in East Sussex, Kevin Collins in Oxfordshire, and the sound of waves recorded by Lynn in Ayrshire.